here are a bunch of entrepreneurs across the world. We could partner with a few incubators, accelerators, potentially venture builders and studios in some, you know, some parts of the world that are interesting and exciting, but don't necessarily have uh, either a market or the appetite to build a company for whatever reason, right? Policies being one of them. So the way we would then leverage that is partner with them, work with them, train that hub to be uh, uh, a mirror like the AC. And therefore, you now have a new AC in a place like Hyderabad or, or Bangalore or uh, Mogadishu or wherever. Um, and at the end of that program, if there is aspiration from the entrepreneurs to say, hey, listen, I want to explore North America and I want to do it with uh, with Canada as the springboard and specifically with the Kitchener-Waterloo area as the region I want to be in, that's where the startup visa comes in. Jay, hey, welcome back on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, so Jay, you're one of the a few I've really been looking forward to having on uh, for a second time because the first podcast opened up even more questions uh, than answers. And I, I really enjoyed that because uh, the AC Center is, uh, you know, as we talked about the first episode, it is like a hallmark of Canadian innovation, like where all these companies have always come. It's it, it's one of the oldest uh, incubators in the region. It's one of the biggest. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, um, how your experience has been now at the head of the realm and, you know, working with Canadian companies. You know, how how's your experience been? Yeah. So, so firstly, it sounds like a professorial statement if one question leads to many other questions, but, but uh, it reminds me of being back in grad school. But no, it's been fantastic. It's, uh, you know, a bunch of interesting factoids, right, about the ecosystem in Waterloo, mm. which has similarities and dissimilarities with uh, an ecosystem uh, like like in India, which I've been uh, fairly uh, uh, plugged into. Um, but it's been fantastic. It's been awesome. It's a great time to be doing what we do. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd love to share those experiences with you, uh, specifically in the context of uh, the future work, I suppose. Yeah, uh, well, I'd love to talk about this um, this habit of yours of keeping uh, Toronto hours, even though you're an international man. Uh, being in North America, we're kind of like, um, we don't have that kind of culture, right? We keep we keep our local time and we work our local hours, but working in, in during COVID, you know, we work with Europe, I've, I've, you know, work with European companies and how people the podcast and it forces you to work in a more global kind of timescape. Mm -hmm. And now I, I, you know, last year we worked with, I worked with like an Italian company and we had to keep Italian hours while working with them. And mm -hmm. it's very difficult, but it's also shifting us into a global workspace. Right. right. You know, you as someone who has experience, you know, keeping working within different time zones and, and being international, what are like some tips or trips you can uh, you can give us on to like you're keeping sane, you know, while uh, sure. <laughs> you know everyone else is sleeping around you, but you're you're working like how does that work for you personally? That's a great question. And I, I, I think you touched upon a topic that's very interesting, right? Um, I think we as, as a as a race. We were headed in this direction anyways, where the waters were disappearing. The world was pretty much flat um, thanks to the internet and all things that enable automation. We were, you know, the boundaries and, and time zones were disappearing anyways. And I think if anything, COVID has really accelerated that. And so here we are across, you know, two sides of the planet and yet time zones don't really matter. As far as insanity is concerned, I think the trick is to ask people around me, like my wife, if they are staying insane, thanks to <laughs> thanks to me not uh, sleeping at the right hours. But I guess, you know, it's par for the course. If you look at entrepreneurs, uh, you know, much to the, the, the disappointment of people, they'll say that there is no work-life balance. I mean, I, I can vouch for the fact that when I was an entrepreneur, as much as people claim, hey, man, you, you, you got to get your shit together and focus on work-life balance, it's just not there, right? Because you're responsible for so many things, including the payroll, making sure people get paid, making sure problems get solved, putting on fires, etc. So add that to this other variable where we see the rise of entrepreneurship and the rise of the gig economy, um, I think honor the days when you sort of compartmentalize your work to be a strict script of nine to five 
and you just focus on stakeholders who could be across the globe. So I think that's possibly the answer. Yeah. So, I mean, this touches on upon, uh, you know, the, the new uh, work-life balance is work-life integration and this idea of hybrid work, right? Uh, you live and work in one environment, but you also uh, go to other places to do work. Everything's kind of shifted, right? Like Starbucks was founded on this philosophy of being the third place. People have two places, the work and the home. They want to be the third place where people can go out and socialize, but do work at the same time outside of the workspace, but also outside of the home. And uh, they really shifted on that. And we saw the rise of co-working spaces now potentially being able to explode because people are becoming, okay, I don't want to work at home every day. I want to go in and the office is too far away. I can have this in-between space, right? So the way we kind of physically uh, operate, how physically a city's function is changing dramatically. Uh, and with that change traffic flows, changing how, uh, like, I think even like, uh, I think it was downtown Toronto or New York that announced like how many millions of dollars was lost because of foot traffic to local restaurants and eateries, like just because people aren't going downtown to work every day, right? So all these things are shifting in, in hybrid work. And I guess, what does that mean for the digital, what, the, what does the digital workspace look like? What does the digital environment look like when you're physically moving around? How do we congregate and share ideas and still feel like we're part of a community? Yeah, it's a great question, right? And it dwells upon lots of interesting topics and the intersection of these topics, right? Including, you know, things like anthropology. It, you know, we are where we are because of the way we've acted as a community. And that dwells a lot on, on, on physical interaction and, and being close and space. I think today we live in a world where that is slowly but surely disappearing and, and technology clearly has a role to play. I think to answer your question, there are, there are, I think, two shifts happening the way I see it as far as the so-called hybrid workplace is concerned, right? Number one, there is a shift from uh, when you work to where you work. Um, and, and, and the whole when you work is all about bolstering engagement. It's about unleashing productivity within stakeholders, within, within employees, within communities, etc. Um, and, you know, as long as you want to foster that engagement between staff, it really doesn't matter where they work. It's a question of when you work. Um, and it's very evident pre-COVID, the, the elements of when you work is very reflective in the gig economy. You know, so, so if you're a designer, for example, in the product space, you, know, you, you wake up at nine, uh, 10 to 11, you work for product number one for project A, take a, take a break. One to two, you focus on customer B. You go to customer C in the afternoon, work late in the night to focus on entrepreneurs um, in other parts of the world and you sleep late and, and you continue the cycle. So the whole shift is, um, to the when as opposed to the where. So that's the first one. I think the second one is this interesting intersection of um, space, data, and um, human resources. And the, and the evolution of those intersections is what we're beginning to see. So you, know, you could argue that in the 40s and 50s, um, the emphasis was on the space you know, much later, 80s, 90s, through the evolution of the workspace and open collaborative workspace, cubicles, et cetera, et cetera, um, the emphasis moved to the people. Um, much later in the, uh, I would say in the 2000s, that, that emphasis shifted to data, uh, all things to do with machine learning, all things to do with automation, you know, the things that what you and I are doing right now, using platforms that enable information exchange in real time. So I think these moving weights around space, people, and data is the second paradigm that we're beginning to, to, to see and emerge and create a sort of new reality, if you will. I don't know where it'll end up, but uh, it's interesting that we've, we're seeing this in our own uh, lifetime. Yeah, I think you said a certain point there that like everyone seems to be an expert, but nobody is currently an expert. <laughs> and uh, I think that's so I think that's a great reset, right? That's, hap that's happening right now because 
currently we're seeing this transition to knowledge work, right, from information work. So uh, the period that you're talking about where, you know, the information age, people were, uh, had focus on throughput. Data mm-hmm. came to them, they uh, compartmentalized it or they structured it in a certain, in a new way, uh, or they compressed it, uh, they processed it and they passed it on. But now right. knowledge work is building systems, right? Even yep. now within a, within a job function, in most places, you're building a new process, you're mm-hmm. implementing new things. Um, more and more workers are being given more autonomy within their jobs, but also more and more companies are asking for more experience for coming oh. in. You know, the old joke being like, you know, every, um, Every new, every, uh, like, uh, what's it, uh, new job is asking for like five, 10 uh, years of experience, even though the industry's right. only lasted for like two years, right? right? It's because people are looking, uh, work now requires deep knowledge mm-hmm. and people who can implement knowledge. And mm-hmm. part of that re- requires is a way for people to learn, right? right. Like, acquire that knowledge and then knowing how to uh, deploy that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And part of learning is leadership, right? So, mm-hmm. There's a great idea I've been testing around is that most people don't actually need more knowledge. They actually need more leadership in how to deploy knowledge. So it it really, uh, it really goes down to leaders to bear the brunt of how knowledge is deployed within an organizational framework. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you feel that leadership has changed in this environment where everything is digital? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to bring that up. Um, I'll walk you through this very interesting story, right, in, in a second, uh, which explains a lot in terms of not only leadership, but how the, the significance of the butterfly effect on, on many things, right, specifically on the workplace and how things have led to this, this structure of efficiency over a period of time. But before I get to that story, which is fascinating, by the way, um, to answer your question, I think the old structure of hierarchy-driven organizations is surely disappearing, right? It has to be democratic and flat as much as possible because knowledge systems come, like you said, from A, from experience and B, from this quotient of innovation. And if you take in the quotient of innovation, oftentimes you get a, you know, you get a brand new perspective to a solution that is outside the realm in which the problem was created to begin with. Um, So, if you combine those elements of innovation that come from outside versus experiential knowledge that's been transferred down in these hierarchical systems, therein lies the ability to, 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 to forge new pathways, right? And the folks who do it really well are entrepreneurs. Uh, they're always looking to solve problems through iterative methods that are, that are constantly looking outwards. Now, but to make that happen, you need this fine balance of, um, Two things, right? Culturally fresh energy, optimism, passion to change the affirmative. And that really comes from outside. And then you have the second part, which is programmatic process-driven systems engineering, which only comes from a culture of, of organizational hierarchy and organizational experience. So I think a marriage of the two is what will lead to a future where we continuously stay on the edge of the innovation curve but at the same time have guardrails and processes that ensure that the organization does not fall off the rails. Um, so if you look at the maturity of organizations, the, the bigger behemoths tend to focus more on the organizational structure where you can take risks for obvious reasons, whereas entrepreneurs in the, in the early stage, uh, in the early stage of the maturity curve tend to take a ton of risk. So I think the, the, the fine balance between those two elements is what lead to an interesting future and digital is the way to go to make that enablement, right? You can literally transform on the fly. So if you look at things like uh, process automation, uh, robotic process automation, business intelligence for building management, etc., those are all incredibly powerful use cases where y- you can literally unplug people to get them to focus on creative stuff and have machines and systems do the, uh, the, the mundane robotic stuff. So I think that's, I think that's the future. But, but the one story I wanted to walk you through, in, in, in the context of this conversation, you know, I'd gone back and studied, uh, how do we end up here, right? How, how did organizations end up um, in this sort of, I don't want to use the word monolithic, but reasonably homogeneous structure across the world, right? Every organization sort of looks and feels the same. 
<laughs> and the study that that blew me away was two elements. One is the the rise of capitalism through the workplace slash office. Um, and the second one that led to that is the uh, coffee break. I don't know if you know this story. Um, it's from this book called uh, uh, Taste of Tastes or Taste of Paradise by Wolfgang Schirrbusch. I might be mentioning the, uh, pronouncing the name wrong. It's a German guy. Uh, it's a crazy story. So it turns out, and this goes back to your question of leadership, right? How do you, how do you push down policies that may have a catalytic effect on things to come? And in this case, it has stayed forever. So the story goes like this. So it turns out in the mm, 1600s and 1700s, uh, most of society did not really drink water uh, because of the pathogens and microbes and whatever were in there. Um, so a lot of the folks were on alcohol most of the time by design, including kids. Um, they were given cider of sorts uh, for breakfast. And, you know, fast forward to the, the, the Second World War, uh, this guy who ran this uh, uh, knitwear company, specifically neckties in Denver, I forget the name of the organization, it'll come back to me. Um, he realized that he was losing a lot of people to uh, men, specifically to the war. So he figured he's got to get whoever's on the on the market into the organization. So he tried uh, older people who were not being recruited. That didn't work out too well. So he um, recruited women, uh, specifically with with skills that have to do with intricate looming and weaving. Uh, and turns out their efficiency was you know through the roof. But it fell. The efficiency and productivity fell uh, at around noon. Uh, Wigwam, that, sorry, that's the name of the company. Wigwam, Wigwam Weaves or Weavers. So here's what he did. He said, all right, for us to boost productivity, we've got to, you know, what should we do? Should we give them a break? It turns out uh, the answer was coffee. Um, so he introduced this concept of coffee. And I mean, this is a side story for another conversation, but it turns out coffee is actually a, a hallucinogen. Uh, it's, I mean, it's available, we all take it, but, but in reality, the the structure, the chemical structure of it reveals that it is actually a hallucinogen, right? So here were people who were given coffee at about 11 a.m., productivity boosted right back up, tapered down, 3 p.m., they're given another coffee break, more hallucinogen coffee, and efficiency went right back up, um, which then led to this organization flourishing, which then led to the so-called rise of coffee culture slash coffee break, which then gave birth to this new paradigm of, uh, of the rise of capitalism um, from, the, from the 40s. And now here we are where coffee breaks are very much part of the organization. Right? It was driven by one leader in one sort of mundane organization in far flung Denver in the 40s. And here we are today, thanks to a leadership and a butterfly effect on that. Coffee culture is very much part of, uh, uh, part of the workforce so anyways so that, that i thought that was an interesting tidbit to your question of what can leadership do and where we are now i love that coffee story because uh it's like you're pretty much drugging your workforce and getting there and squeezing productivity out of them and uh just for, and the reward for doing that was uh you know uh, is increased productivity so it, it, this is actually interesting because like Silicon Valley, um, especially like uh, high creative companies like Pixar, uh, uh, Disney, um, DreamWorks, and the animation studios, uh, they have they have been touted like um, psychedelics as like as like one of their creative juices, right? To to bring out a lot of um, a lot of their artworks, a lot of like their their visual insights, things like that. And it's like these uh, substances, ha you know, can can alter uh, consciousness to make you think different, right? So it's one of the excitements that people have about the, the rise of uh, decriminalization and now of the, the future legalization, potentially, of um, the psychedelics because it's opening up a new door of 
how how to alter ourselves almost right like one of the things i love just uh, just as, as you is a uh, study of history and you know previous to the criminalization of uh, of, of, of many substances um you know people like you know there's different people uh, different uh, tribes almost uh, like that kind of centered their ideologies around substances and ha- and the use cage of them right and Talking about the homogeny uh, of organizations, I feel like there are cult-like needs for organizations to form where they're more than just a workplace. They're like a family, but they're also introduced you to new uh, experiences. And it's like you're joining an organization that's going to take care of you more and more. Uh, parts of your life can be there. So, uh, you know, squeezing back to this idea of like changes in the workspace, Right. I mean, we're seeing this like Peter Drucker uh, back in uh, back in the day kind of predicted this. With, he, he termed it as the atomization of the firm. Right. You, you, you know, when you hire somebody, you're not actually squeezing all the productivity of them. Most of the time, they don't actually do the work. You know, for our work week, Tim Ferriss talked about as well. When you're a, a, a wage worker or you're, you're salaried, most of the time you're just available. You use the time that you have given a, a lot of a, a portion of your time uh, to the company to, you know, get tasked out of you and uh the, what that gives the company is okay we have this many people with the, this much time who can do this, this kind of work how do we utilize it right it's it's pre-described time and now that the workforce is changing and uh, that kind of ideology is also changing we're no longer uh, blocking people by time but now by task we need this done right but we also can't oversee if you're the one doing it that person can take that and like break it down and project manage it and get a whole bunch of freelancers to actually do the job for them so it's like we're almost seeing like this deprecation of like of consultants happening everywhere we're like oh i know how to do this i'll take that job break it down get other people to do it for less amount and then squeeze out that work so this is the consultants everywhere now right people who they have taken knowledge that they have and like yeah we can do this for you but i'm not gonna don't pay me a wage pay me for the task pay me for the project uh, so freelancer culture has exploded um you know entrepreneurial culture has exploded and the atomization of the firm has really been um uh, i think one of the driving forces of this it's like companies no longer need to hire and keep people in-house on payroll to get things done it's easier because of platforms and technology to distribute workload so you know so these two forces right um the rise of more more middle classes the, the economy uh, the, the economy has shifted more people given more people resources to enter the innovation landscape and at the same time with atomization of the firm where you can you can kind of access a global workforce easy and faster right uh kind of uh, kind of spurring this on i I really want to talk about you know uh, from what you see from a global landscape the different regions that are picking up and how that operates you know uh, the different regions like like you know the uh, the eurozone versus india versus south america like what is happening in terms of productivity and innovation do you feel like there is equal access everywhere uh do you feel like there is um you know, any explosions of particular uh, uh, industries in different parts of the world? Like, you know, what do you see from a global perspective? Yeah, it's a brilliant question, right? Because, you know, change is so constant that whatever we infer from data today is going to be dissimilar tomorrow. Um, And I fully agree with you on both those points, right? Some of the data that I read... uh, specifically on North America versus Asia slash India was turns out that about 35 to 40% of uh, the workforce in the U S um, was part of the gig economy, which, which is, which is so high. I, I would never have thought that that number is as, as high as that. So this is pre COVID, right? Um, and I don't know what the numbers are post COVID. I'm guessing that it's only accelerated because, you know, people have realized that there's a better way to do what they want to do as opposed to sticking to a, a payroll-based employment. Um, but the other stat that threw me away was uh, as high as 90% of existing freelance slash uh, gig economy workers felt that post a health crisis, there is a brighter future ahead, which is, I think, what we're beginning to see now as we get through the PPP. The, the humps of vaccination and possibly going back to uh, uh, a post-COVID normal, if that's the right word. Um, and both those are, as far as the U.S. is concerned. 
uh, in India, those numbers are interestingly much lower. Uh, the workforce contributing to the, the gig economy is in single digits. Um, number two, the percentage of folks who have a more optimistic slash healthier outlook as far as the freelance slash gig economy is concerned is about 40 to 50%. And that being said, the growth trajectory in India is is 40 to 50%, meaning if the percent, if, if it's 5% of the workforce, total workforce that's in the gig economy, the rate of growth puts India or a place like India in a position where it will eventually overtake the US in about 10 to 15 years. So that speaks volumes of where, of two things, right? Where is the, the next generation of the workforce coming from? And number two, the behavioral shift. You know, people are sick and tired of sticking to a script of, you know, how they want to work. And I think the common denominator there is age. If you look at the average age of India, it's about 29. So a lot of these young folks really don't want to work for the man. Um, so that's one part of the story. The other one, which I found, again, fascinating is a, is a great book. Actually, it's a great theory uh, by this guy called David, David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs. <laughs> and Bullshit Jobs deals, this guy's an anthropologist, right? He's not a, he's not a dude who's just made up stuff that hey, most people don't like to work, which may be true, but he's actually studied this thing. And he said, there are four types of people who, actually, so before that, he says 50% of the global workforce <laughs> are in Bullshit Jobs. Um, and he has these four categories. Um, flunkies, who just try to make their superiors look better, goons who uh, who uh, intently harm uh, others, uh, meaning other staff members, uh, duct tapers who who fix problems but that are temporary uh, when it can be fixed permanently through other routes, but they're just not aware of it. Um, in fact, one of the examples he gives in that category are uh, software engineers uh, repairing terribly put together code. Uh, and the last one is uh, box stickers, which is check a bunch of boxes and have FaceTime uh, and make it appear that like, like they're doing work. Uh, and the last one, sorry, one more, <clears throat> is taskmasters, which are leaders in the organization who, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, who create extra work for everybody, even those who don't need it. <laughs> so he says, if you add this up, every organization is populated with bullshit, <laughs> bullshit workers. Um, now to go back to your question, I think you, you know, there's some truths to it as you read this paper and this book, right? Um, but as you go, you know, deeper into your question and look at what's the future look like, I think a lot of these bullshit jobs will disappear because specifically people are involved in, in doing work that has skin in the game, right? I, I can just show up at work or be on a call for three hours a day and hope that I get a paycheck. I've got to do, I've got to you know, earn my own bread. Only way to do it is pick up six different projects, work at my own convenience, do it at my home or work from anywhere. Um, and I think that's the future. The, the disappearance of the of the bullshit jobs, number one. And number two, <clears throat> the emergence of the freelance class of working. Yeah, I mean, I love uh, I, I love your um, uh, anthropological uh, kind of uh, take on to like understanding changes, because one of the things I love, to, to, one of the things I think about is that if we understand the past, we can actually mm -hmm. predict the future because uh, things uh, cycle, right? Things cycle yeah. and replicate, right? We're in a hundred years right, cycle in terms of culture. So how people lived and what they probably went through a hundred years ago is similar to what we have now. It's just right. we have different technology and, and, and solutions in place that we can uh, implement, right? Exactly. And, and, um, you know, India especially is, is really interesting because uh, you talked about the loom and you talked about weaving. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the reasons that the first industrial revolution, the industrial revolution happened in general, was the East trying to compete with the vast labor capital of the, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of the, of the sorry, the West competing with the East, right? Mm -hmm. And the East is vast labor capital. I think India, uh, you know, pre uh the East India Trading Company was at 35, 36% of the world's GDP, right? right? right. One, of the, one of the greatest uh, you know, uh, uh, centers of wealth creation. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it famously didn't import anything because they didn't need anything. And right. it was one of the reasons why the East India Trading Company was, traded, was formed was to like go and create a need uh, for okay. them to, uh, to importing uh, Western products. 
Mm-hmm. And the you know the, the first industrial revolution being the machinery that can compete with the labor capital. But uh, one of the things I'm interested in, uh, to learn about is like especially uh, back in those days, like people the organizational structures that existed, because mm-hmm. people kind of join uh, almost like labor unions, right? Like mm-hmm. you uh, you take on a profession and you get really good at doing this, and you mm-hmm. get upskilled by being part of this community, and you build that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and later on, it kind of got bastardized as the caste based kind of yeah. like hierarchical system. But back uh, back in the days, there were schools that where people can upskill and, and and learn, and there was this great culture of like supporting um, scholars, where like mm-hmm. uh, people you know scholars will come into an area and doesn't have to worry about food or living because people will just give it to them for free. So if right. you were considered a scholar, a knowledge worker, you've got you've got you you can live live anywhere you want just by going around because people want want you to spread knowledge and ideas. Nice. So with that, there was this kind of culture of okay, let's spread ideas and learning and have a, have a, a, a respect for learning and and the community is a community driven aspect of it. And two, mm-hmm. there was this way of like the community uh, that I, I'm a part of takes care of me, helps me upskill and learn and get really good at my craft. And all I have to do is this one thing. There's, and there's, you know, everything gets chained. So nowadays everything is hierarchical in an organization, right? You right. manufacture, you produce, and you want to distribute yourself or at least, or at least figure out the chain uh, and you own it or own that vertical or you own that distribution chain. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're going back to that point where labor, like labor is moving into, uh, I'm really good at getting this craft. I'm part of communities yeah. that can help me yeah. learn and keep up to date on what the changes are. And mm-hmm. I, as a person, belong to those communities. The job or the or the project or who I work with now is 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 temporary. But right. my craft is what I, I want to get better at. Because interesting, right? And so, like, yeah. what can we learn from that? Like, uh, are you familiar with like more ancient uh, cultures and traditions, especially India? Like, do you see a emergence of that in a way organizations are being uh, implemented? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing the way you put it across, right? And it sounds, as you spoke, it sounds very much like we're, we're certainly headed back in that, in that, in that direction. Except now the project is so physically distributed and decentralized. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not as familiar as you potentially are, but I've certainly read up about the whole, you know, if you look at things like the, the the education system that existed in in ancient India, right? It was this whole Gurukul system where the idea was you learn based off of experiential learning, right? And and you you stay there till you figure it out, and you leave with the idea that you're you're a thinker, right? You're not a proverbial as Pink Floyd said, brick in the wall after you come out of the factory of education. And I think we're headed back in that direction, right? I mean, if you look at all these millions of kids who are now doing online learning, um, you don't need to be in a building. I mean, of course, you could make a case that um, interpersonal skills are diminishing because these kids are not in school, etc. But but there is certainly a case to be made that very quickly we have overcome the situation where we actually need to be in a physical position. Mm. In the case, <clears throat> case of uh, employment, that's, that's certainly true. People are People have found a way where you don't need to be a generalist or a specialist. You could be a, a, a specialized generalist and continue to do what you do because you're exceptionally good at one particular trait or a certain finite set of characteristics that projects will find valuable. Um, yeah, so, so I, I do agree with you that, that I think we're headed in a direction which might be far more positive than we make it sound or sounded two or three years ago. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about this in the context of an accelerator, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting things, uh, you know, you re- recently uh, the AC Center has published your uh, strategic vision for 2025, mm-hmm. um, which uh, it, part of it, uh, you know, mentioned the accelerator center as being uh, this, uh, following a particular model, right? It's called, you call it the venture studio model, or mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, which is also known as, as a parallel model, which is a, a one a one organization that's building multiple organizations. Mm-hmm. So there's explicit challenges in just running one enterprise. But like when you're dealing with like, oh, well, let's help many different enterprises or like formulate many different enterprises and help them with the launch. Uh, there are particular challenges, right? What's it, you know, what is or what do you feel like the main challenges between running an accelerated style venture model, like studio model versus running like a regular or enterprise or organization? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, so number one, we're also discovering this as we go, but the one thing we've certainly stumbled upon, actually maybe that's the wrong choice of word, right? we've actually worked on this, is 
before COVID and lockdown and virtual, et cetera, our style of uh, programming to help the companies go from point A to B was this proprietary format that involved four phases. Um, thanks to COVID uh, in, in 2020, the whole thing went virtual with the idea that a, we need to be relevant as a business. We just can't wait till the doors open again, not knowing when that's going to happen. Uh, we need to sustain as an, as an organization, uh, and we need to get companies through our doors. Um, we can't let our customers suffer uh, while we you know, wait and figure this out. So we went virtual, and as a function of going virtual, um, everything that we do, meaning the four faces remained virtual, the mentorship angle that kicks in to help these companies suddenly became virtual, very much like the conversation you and I are having today. The uh, the touch points that, re- that that were originally required to see a founder moving from <clears throat> milestone A to milestone B went virtual. The, uh, the, the, the population of the checklist to move a startup or a founder from point A to B, that moved virtual. Fast forward to 2021 today, uh, the number of occupants in our building is minimal. Um, and that is attributable to two things, right? One is obviously COVID and the uncertainty around it. But the second big one is what we've been discussing for the last few minutes, where our mentors, the staff, the folks in the building have all realized that at least in the interim, they can continue to operate virtually. There's no real need to come in. Um, because of that, our programming significantly continues to be in online mode. Um, so we figured, well, if that's the case, we now no longer are throttled by capacity. We're not, we're not, we're not, you know, handicapped by the number of physical rooms or seats in the building. We can just open this up and go national, which is really what we've done. So today our programming is open, not just to folks who are physically in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, but uh, anyone in Canada. So you can plug in, apply, um, and, 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 you know, we'll accept you based on merit and all the other criteria. So that's that's one big shift and a big pivot. Now, will this sustain itself? I personally don't think so. You know, we, we, we tend to come back to, we gravitate towards wanting that physical look, look and touch and feel. So we figured, all right, let's go hybrid. Uh, let's keep this interim virtual uh, online programming going at least till the end of the year, and then figure things out as people come back into the building. And to make that happen, um, or or to foster it, we're launching a series of programs where we are saying, you know, you don't need to come into the building just for programming. You can come into the building just to be associated with the uh, Accelerator Center. Um, You know, one big driving force of being in building, of course, is the collisions, you know, the water cooler conversations, the the conversations that you and I are having reasonably organically as it as it sort of meanders its way through intelligence and new learning, etc. Um, so that's what we want to foster. So we're not prescribing that you come into the building to take programming. You can come into the building, not take programming, and pick and choose programming as and when you desire. So our new model going forward is really those three things. Number one, space. Come in as and when you want. Don't need to be stuck on programming. Number two, it can be virtual, where all things to do with programming doesn't need to have space. And the third is, hey, we are giving you the flexibility to pick and choose both those elements, the space piece as well as the programming piece. So that's that's the direction we're going in. And I think that's going to be the future for a lot of organizations as well. Yeah, I think you broke right into kind of the conversation um, um, that we we wanted to bridge into, right? This this virtual accelerator kind of experience uh, that needs to be operated because uh, accelerators famously had a very brutal philosophy of like once you get into our program, we want you physically here, uh, right? Like it doesn't matter, you know, especially uh, Y Combinator is ruthlessly famous for this. It's like cool, first step you got in, but second step you have to run our program physically, and part of being able to do that is that you have this great draw, but you're bringing very like high level people in together to one space. You know, uh, universities, you see one of the, one of the greatest utilities was that here is 30,000, 50,000, the smartest kids in the world who are not, you know, who have been pre-qualified, but also have the, the resources to afford this, you know, to go through that experience. 
so you know your facebook has built a uh, built an empire off of you know uh you know uh, off of uh, catalyzing uh, college kids you know uh, in the 20 you know in the 2000s now it seems like the greatest concentration of knowledge is in these incubators and accelerators right like, like especially uh, campus linked ones 50,000 um 50,000 smartest kids now it's like a thousand or 1200 of those of uh, those kids might go into the top incubator programs and start launching companies so these places are uh, famously been places where you can t- find top minds and creative talent and now it's all distributed right so without the physical interaction like the office cooler talk or like without that that it, there used to be a, 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 a this idea of sublimation right you, people kind of like could like bump in each other and learn from each other or share resources and things like that so how do we how do you enforce a culture um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a virtual environment where everyone's running their own enterprise, they're busy, you know, as a, as a founder, you're, you know, you're hungry for resources and trying to build your baby. Um, so time it always feels limited. How do you formulate a culture of like, uh, of collaboration where it's like, this is a lot about helping each other out, not just getting programming, but also pro- giving in to a community. Right. Yeah, I think it's difficult, right? In the virtual world, that is. Um, so, I'll tell you what we've done, and by no means is it the is the way to go. But you know, we're experimenting with various initiatives. So we've figured that the best way to catalyze these types of conversations that used to happen in the real world is to is to emulate it in the virtual world. So we do these sessions called the founder hours, um, where founders get together on a conversation like this virtually, and they talk about real problems um, that they're faced with, right? Hiring talent is impossible. By the time you put an offer and get people in, it's you know four to eight weeks. How do you solve for it? So another founder comes up with the idea that hey, maybe we should uh, throw this over the wall and figure out if there are people in in Bangalore or Beijing who can do this work for us. So by the time you wake up, job's done. Um, the other one we've done is uh, uh, event not events but workshops and conversations centered around folks who've been there, done it before. And a lot of it has to do with alumni. Um, so that's the other one, which is, again, a conversation that has a flavor of education, if you will. Um, so again, a lot of these things have a virtual format to it. Is it sustainable? I don't think so. Because of two reasons, right? One is, I mean, at the end of the day, there is an element of exhaustion on, you know, on, with regards to being on, on, on online conversations of this type. There's only so many you can do in a day. And the second, which personally I've found uh, or or discovered rather is when you and I are in a room, uh, even if it's a scheduled meeting on our calendar, we spend the first five minutes and maybe the last five minutes, you know, just shooting the breeze, right? And in there, there are a few nuggets that you and I pick up. And then we pick those threads up much later. Hey, let's go for a coffee, um, build a relationship. Whereas in a Zoom call, you dive right into it, right? One doesn't meander around the subject. You're spot on, you get into it, you want to increase productivity or whatever is required. And there is a lost opportunity there for serendipity. Um, So because of those two reasons, I don't think trying to foster a culture of of organic thinking and relationship building is sustainable. I think we'll end up going back to the physical world, or at least I want it. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm glad you're saying that because you're right. Like, having gone through an incubator experience and 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 and, and kind of went through my twenties being part of that uh, university incubator experience, mm-hmm. I love the idea of just bouncing into somebody that you know you never right. predicted, and then boom, you know, something catalyzed out of it. They might know somebody that could help me, right? Yeah. Uh, so many times, it's, uh, that catalyzation is 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 one of the main aspects of being in that kind of environment, right? right. So, um, do, do you feel like there's any kind of uh, in the future? like um there would be like uh, accelerator networks that are forming kind of like co-working networks like you know you like you can have a pass to one co-working space and that becomes a pass to another co-working space and it's they're all right. inter-networked even though they're different organizations do you feel like accelerators would like have that kind of open door policy where like if you're part of one accelerator you can jump into like a partner accelerator in the uk right. if you're there right. and just like you know have some kind of benefits is there some kind of collaboration happening there in a wider scale awesome. Yeah, so number one, I think it's a killer idea. And I think I've got to come back to you to get more ideas like this. Uh, I, I think the challenge, at least in our ecosystem, is um, a lot of the a lot of the script is dictated by government funding, 
right? So here, here's a grant given to an incubator or an accelerator, and you're sort of you 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 got to prescribe to that belief system, and you got to deliver KPIs based off of those uh, of the money that's allocated to you, right? Which then leaves you with very little, with, with limited room to try out new experiments. But the, the the idea that you put out there is, I mean, it's, it is brilliant. Um, the question would be. If I'm, you know, part of the AC, and if I want to go to Velocity at the University of Waterloo or to Communitech, um, are you looking at programming or lab access or access to physical space or access to uh, a new set of mentors, etc.? And if you can sort of weave that story and maintain our swim lanes, but yet have uh, pieces that connect everybody, I, th I think it's a brilliant idea. Uh, and I certainly I'm going to pick that up and go back to the stakeholders ecosystem. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I hope so. I mean, this is this is one of um, uh, one of the one of our goals that we were doing when we started this uh, our partnership with accelerators and uh, incubators across the region. You know, we have about forty six partners we work with across Canada, mm -hmm. and we we're like we're using media to like kind of catalog the companies and the people involved in all these different things. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that was you know when we started this 2018, 2017, there was a great bunch of silos uh, in, in innovation. Right, you get into mm -hmm. an accelerator, but everything kind of goes dark after that everything that happens within that is kind of like a closed door process and then a bunch of companies come out so you know how you know utilizing media i think it's really really important because every all eyes are on innovation you know um somebody somebody once told me on the podcast it's like um innovation in terms of interest on the, on the internet is second only to porn right like yeah. everyone and everything is like you know is trying to figure out how to be part of this uh, industry that's that's uh, that's becoming main, more mainstream yeah. So media around, I think, uh, innovation uh, is, is going to be really more important because it's going to highlight access right, to knowledge. Right. We have, you know, and uh, I'm not sure if you're following this, but it, it, like one of our greatest sources of innovation knowledge uh, is like TechCrunch, which has got sold mm -hmm. off to uh, Apollo, a uh, yeah, private mm -hmm. equity firm. In, in Canada, we only have like BetaKit covering uh, covering articles and all these publications kind of publish on like hey this company has raised x this company has oh. raised you know uh, y all about you know fundraising is what gets you kind of noticed sure. but the actual dirty greedy work of like building something you don't really get a claim for yeah. i think that's what really accelerators and, and incubator programs give you cloud for like when you're part of something you feel like someone is giving you uh, like a ver verification that what you're working right. on has some value right. Right. Uh, you know, we're working on a media product together and, and getting you on, on, on a podcast, running your own podcast and mm -hmm. producing media. Right. How do you feel about media as a medium for communication, exchange of ideas and being like the replacement for being in person? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 by far the greatest enabler um, in the last five years, for sure. Right. For, for multiple reasons. One is the voice of the democratization of voice, right? You're, you're no longer tethered to mechanisms that existed in the 2000s or 90s or whatever, where you, you were really held to ransom by a few houses, right? It, it, it's truly a democratic process now. Now, the second is uh, the, the power of technology that allows for distribution in real time makes it so powerful Right? Nothing stops you, Ravi, today from putting this content out there in real time. It's just a choice that you decided not to do. Um, uh, the third is the ability to get two sides of the equation, right? Uh, the challenge we have with media driven by the large technology houses is that it's significantly polarizing. Everything is now looked at through the lens of politics, right? whatever it is, including healthcare, right? Thanks to uh, thanks to what we've seen in the last eighteen months. But conversations of this nature allow for that voice to be heard on both sides of the spectrum, um, and that, and that just has a multiplier effect, right? You, you like you said, we don't need to just necessarily hear about capital raised versus valuations versus all these unicorns that are coming out. You can provide a platform, and you do provide a platform that allows for conversations that are about all the uh, stuff that's happening in the trenches, which really nobody likes to sensationalize. Um, in fact, last week we were having a conversation 
internal to the AC. Uh, by that, I, by that I mean the founders, uh, two founders and I, about will diversity be gender diversity be affected thanks to uh, hybrid hybrid models, uh, and there's enough data to show that that is indeed true. And no, really. People talk about it, but it's, you know, uh, how do you go about either mandating it, enforcing it, creating a culture, etc. Tough, tough topic to talk about, right? So stuff like that. So going back to your question, the role that media plays today, especially alternative formats compared to the formats of uh, A, mainstream media houses, or B, uh, social media, the, the top three social media channels, is supremely powerful. Um, it's almost... Like that line from, was it Spider-Man? With, with great, what is it? With great responsibility comes with great, great power. power comes yeah. right? I, I think that's what folks like you have. It's And it's very endearing to see that you give a platform to voice the opinions that are otherwise not heard. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think it's fascinating and it's very powerful at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's something I think about a lot. Um, Naval Ravikant, the founder of uh, AngelList, is probably one of my most quoted person uh, people. Uh, he has a huge following on Twitter, uh, and he has produced what's called what now we know going on as Navalisms, right? These like codes of conduct for modern life. I really love it. And uh, one of them is like this idea of leverage, right? The internet is giving us new forms of leverage. You either uh, provide code, you build onto the, the code framework of the internet. Um, and you get rewarded for that. Um, or two, you provide um, a media into the system, right? And utilize uh, the reach that uh, the internet gives you to, you know, to have these pieces of content float around there and, and give you uh, give you leverage. So uh, Gary V talks about this. You know, every company needs to be a media company. You know, you, you like especially if you're starting something new, uh, you need to you know utilize, utilize the support you can to to you know more CEOs need to become a storytelling CEO, right? And uh, this this idea that like just by sharing your thoughts and ideas, you can bring towards you you know using the power of distribution the internet gives you, the algorithm will pick it up, pick up your keywords and connect it to other people who are searching and looking for it. You can very quickly uh, you know efficiently start building up a following base of people who actually really care about what you're doing. It doesn't have to be millions anymore, right? It could be that 40, 50, 200 people, but who really care. And suddenly you have like a base that can support you through new ideas and, uh, and new things. So uh, one of my, my hypotheses is that Web 3.0 is going to be built on top of micro com communities and micro economies, right? Um, so how that kind of plays out is going to be interesting. But, you know, but um, that also has uh, brings us back to our last kind of phase about like the infrastructure that's kind of supporting innovation and uh, uh, and, um, and and accelerator programs like yourself, because in a global kind of a context, right, we need global flows of capital, global flows of talent, global flows of, uh, of labor. Right. Um, how do you feel about limitations or blocks that's blocking people from you know, hiring people as needed or working in places as needed? Like, do you feel like in a global context, you know, working with global companies now, um, what are the challenges they're going to face in hiring and maintaining workflows? Is that it going to be global? Yeah. So, number one, I fully agree with you. Right. We are the only thing that's preventing us from free flow of capital, free flow of talent, free flow of ideas. It's actually politics. I mean, these are the folks who are, at least in most countries, um, supposed to represent the people who have these ambitions to do, um, uh, to build new things, right? And to build new infrastructure that enables um, innovation and growth. And unfortunately, these are the folks who are proverbially building walls in, in, in making that happen, which includes policies around immigration, policies around taxation, policies around flow of capital, et cetera. And I think therein lies, again, the, the, the answer to that is potentially uh, a blockchain-based infrastructure that removes these pyramidal schemes and hierarchical structures that were, that, were, that were built thanks to governments that have been insanely inefficient across the world. Um, and number two, alternate forms and instruments of currencies that can take the these reserve banks out of the equation. Because let's face it, at the end of the day, both these parties have failed. Governments across the uh, across the world have failed. And if anything, COVID is an example to, to illustrate that. There should be no reason why 
in this day and age, we're not able to share information between countries in terms of, you know, what vaccines are working, what is the data, what is the data as far as trending is concerned, the difference between infection and disease and why vaccinations as much as uh, people make it sound that it's uh, it's an absolute must, must, must have. There's a lot of truth behind uh, falsification of that narrative, right? Uh, but all things said and done, I think the, the big thing that's stopping uh, this from happening, I, I think, is politics. Uh, it's policymakers and politics who have their interest either in the wrong place or they just don't get it. Or it could be the third thing, which is uh, an old boss of mine used to say, the best form uh, of job security is obscurity. Um, so the reason why governments exist is probably because they're insecure as far as what they'll do next if they were removed from power. So, so yeah. Yeah, um, uh, I, I have such appreciation for your answer there because politics, uh, geopolitics has been considered like the great game, right? It's always changing and influences are, are always happening. And currently, I mean, we're seeing that like the, the, the end of the 20th, cent- the 20th century was um, the conflict between three ideologies, liberalism, fascism and and uh, communism. Now we're seeing kind of like a conflict between uh, zones of interest or civilization yeah. states, right? Countries that kind of share a shared history is kind of forming together and having cooperative aspects and mm-hmm. uh, w- w- with each other forming new zones of interest the eurozone coming together uh, right. france like you know getting uh, you know getting really tight with uh, its previous colonies the french right. colonies <laughs> but also this, the commonwealth is coming together better than before right. uh, better than before canada uh, and india have never been closer uh, right. we, we you know we have like indian um, um, uh, uh, birth uh, ministers in our government mm-hmm. uh, we're also a lot of indian talent is is poor into into the Canadian landscape and uh, into the Canadian economy, mm-hmm. uh, can you? I guess we'll end off with this. It's like, could you talk to us about uh, the startup visa program mm-hmm. that the AC Center promotes and how that's performed, uh, especially uh, nowadays in the virtual environment and during post COVID, and mm-hmm. how that kind of feeds into Vision Twenty Twenty Five. Yeah. So number one, I think the the pro- underlying the program, right? The intent of getting skilled workers into the country is, is really a brilliant masterstroke. It makes a ton of sense. It's the way to keep the economy going. It's the best way to, uh, to your point, the leverage that the U.S. lost over the last, I don't know, decade or so, right? Now, the start of these builds on top of that. It's an enabler that says, for you to come to this country and build your empire and realize your dreams, here are the organizations that has the ability or has been certi- have been certified to, uh, to, to do the diligence, filter you, get you into the country, and then build, a, build, a, build an organization. So that's, that's the background behind it. And I think we're very well suited now with our new roadmap to leverage the start of visa to be able to go global. Um, so what that would look like once it takes off is... Here are a bunch of entrepreneurs across the world. We could partner with a few incubators, accelerators, potentially venture builders and studios in some, you know, some parts of the world that are interesting and exciting, but don't necessarily have uh, either a market or the appetite to build a company for whatever reason, right? Policies being one of them. So the way we would then leverage that is partner with them, work with them, train that hub to be uh uh, a mirror like the AC, and therefore you now have a new AC in a place like Hyderabad or, or Bangalore or uh, Mogadishu or wherever. Um, and at the end of that program, if there is aspiration from the entrepreneurs to say, hey, listen, I want to explore North America and I want to do it with uh, with Canada as the springboard and specifically with the Kitchener Waterloo area as the region I want to be in, that's where the Startup Visa comes in. So here's a program, here's a partnership. Here we go with the program, and at the end of the program, the quote-unquote cream of the crop from that program come to Canada through Waterloo, through the AC. So that's the that's the intent. Um, now, is it working? I don't think so. Uh, and I think a lot of it is attributable to COVID and unforeseen circumstances behind the scenes as far as IRCC is concerned. Um, and the reason I say that in all honesty is uh, is the time it takes, right? So 
if an entrepreneur applies for the startup visa, there is no visibility into how long it takes for the for the the, the visa slash the permanent residence to be granted that enables the entrepreneur to come to Canada. And that lack of transparency in the entrepreneur's world, much more than any other world, is very disturbing um, because things move at such a fast clip that by the time you get your PR, the likelihood of the startup having raised Series A or Series B funding and has moved to Singapore or someplace is reasonably high. Um, and therein lies a lost opportunity for us to get this entrepreneur into the country. So I don't think it's as, I think the intent is fantastic. I think there's a lot of room for it to get better. And therein lies the opportunity for, you know, people like us at the AC to give feedback and make it better. I love that, Jay, because um, you're absolutely right. Like Canada's trying to position itself as part of the Global Minds Project to be like, hey, come here with great ideas, you know, use our resources, use our great legal system that exists to kind of build your company up, but then go back, right? Go back mm-hmm. to the great markets that exist back home, especially India is potentially one of the biggest mar- emerging markets uh, in the 21st century. So I love mm-hmm. this partnership, uh, especially with the AC Center and uh, these growing hubs uh, out of India. I love the fact that uh, there's it's this um, collaboration that exists and is being compounded. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about it from you and from the AC. So thank you again for your time and thank you again for being here.